Well, a few weeks ago, Billy Graham died, and um, you would have maybe seen it on the news or heard it, read articles in the newspaper or um, seen something on the internet. And, um, you know, he really did live a significant life, didn't he? His first tour of Australia and New Zealand um, is, is marked in history as a significant moment in the church in this part of the world. Um, in Melbourne, there were a series of events that started in a festival hall with seven and a half thousand people. And each night, they realised, you know, there was a queue out the front, so they had to move to a bigger venue and a bigger venue and a bigger venue over four or five nights until they ended up with the famous 143,000 at the MCG. Um, and so uh, Sydney had a very similar experience. Apparently, there was a the final night of the of the crusade in Sydney was. 150,000, but across two venues, the showgrounds and the SEG. And over that time, the Australia and New Zealand um, crusade, uh, uh, three million people um, came to hear Billy Graham and 146,000 people came forward to make some kind of a response. And people have done, like historians have done actual, you know, statistical and sociological studies on the impact of the mission. And, there th- you know, some, some things like this, the Bureau of Statistics discovered um, an immediate 10% reduction in alcohol consumption for 1960 to 1961. Isn't that interesting? And so whether they can draw the link, they, they try and make, make a link there. Um, Australian crime, crime statistics show a brief halt in the increase of crime for 1960 to 62. So the rate had doubled from 1920 to 1950 to the 1950s, and then doubled again after a few years later. But in those few years, straight after the uh, the Crusade, um, crime sort of dropped. And then in 1960, it recorded the slowest growth in the number of children also born out of wedlock. Interestingly, everyone had gone to the Crusade, so you know, yeah, kind of behave themselves. Um, so, so really, it was a huge impact, and you, um, you know, you. You can read about that. But sadly, while this was the case, while the Billy Graham crusade was so significant, he came back several times, it didn't curb the long-term trend of the decline of the church in Australia. And here's one of the, a couple of the major reasons why we think in the West and in Australia, post-war Australia, um, in those periods in the 50s, had had a series of powerful economic and social and political forces that were pulling Australians away from church membership. So um, after the war, everyone was like celebrating, woohoo, let's have babies and build houses and let's enjoy life. The middle classes were upwardly mobile leisure consumers. Um, In Australia, we became surrounded by caravan parks and supermarkets and uh, collapsible furniture. Apparently, in this period, around the late 50s into the 60s, we owned more cars and more real estate than any previous generation in our history. So this wealth and desire for more stuff was starting to have a serious effect on our spiritual life, not just of Australia, but the whole West, Western world. Now, eventually, you'll, you'll know if you know your late 20th century history, there was a bit of a backlash, and, and that, that backlash was the counterculture movement. So it was sort of kind of a shallow reaction, all the hippies, you know, and that let's just return to nature man, you know, and play our guitars and 
wear flares and be in community together. And there's some good things about that. That was a kind of a reaction. And also the church at this time started to notice the impact of consumerism. And many pastors and preachers started to preach against it in the 60s. Martin Luther King famously said this, we must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, materialism and militarism are incapable of being conquered. And since the 60s, it's just got worse. There's no doubt that we live in a thing-oriented society, as Martin Luther King said, or in a consumeristic society. And we all know this. It's so much part of the air that we breathe that we don't even notice it half the time. And this morning in our last of our From To series, our From This To That series, we're looking at moving away from this consumer culture as Christians and moving to a mission culture. And you wouldn't necessarily always associate those two words as like equal and opposites. Um, And you can think of mission in lots of ways, but this morning we're thinking of it specifically how it relates to being the, the antidote, God's best antidote to consumerism. We're not just talking about here a repeat of the self to others theme, although you might see some overlap there. Uh, in, a, in a way, consumer to mission is, it's almost like an expansion of self to others. And I think it's appropriate that we talk about it twice, but in an expanded form, because it's such a big issue. Jesus wants us to turn away from our consumerism and he wants to point us to his local and his global mission. And we should do this in community as members of a local church, but also do it in our vocation, in our lives, in wherever we find ourselves. We want to be able to say this, the world is not a marketplace to provide me with the best possible life. Rather, I want to reorientate myself towards serving others, discover the redemptive kingdom of God purpose for my vocation, I'll explain what that means later, and share my possessions with others. Back in 2004, um, when I was working at St Hilary's, we had a young adults camp. And um, the theme of the young adults camp was the movie Fight Club. Uh, I think it came out in 99. Now, I, I have... I, I don't recommend that you go and see that because there's a lot of fighting in Fight Club. Um, but actually, it's a really no. It's a good. It's a good film in the sense that it's um, really uh, explores these really powerful themes about our cult- culture, especially consumerism. And in the film, the main character uh, Tyler Durden, played by both Brad Pitt and Ed Norton, spoiler alert, um, so he says a series of proverbs about consumerism, such as the things you own end up owning you. We buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. Karl Marx said that our religion is the opiate of the masses, but in Fight Club they say that consumerism is the opiate of the masses. The pursuit of the next best product is the current generation's pornography, they say in this movie. There's a people who used to sit in the bathroom with pornography. Now they sit in the bathroom with their IKEA furniture catalogue. This is out of the movie. 
So consumerism is a form of lust. Lust for stuff. Lust for experiences and ultimately lust for comfort. Marketers define consumerism as the protection or the promotion of the interests of consumers. But in Christian discipleship, we see consumerism as actually a negative thing because it's, it's, it's feeding our idolatry for more stuff, more experiences. And it causes us to treat other people selfishly. Consumerism is a description for the things we use to soothe ourselves, to distract us from our pain. Our latest iPhone with its flickering lights, which we spend hours staring at each day. There's some horrible statistics going around about how many hours people spend in their lifetime, like something like four to five years, if you count up how much people are looking at in current days. By the end of their life, four to five years just going on that. It's a flickering idol. Our fine food, our alcohol, which makes us feel warm inside. Consumerism is it's not just a, a phenomenon, though, of the last 100 years. It actually goes back to Jesus' day even. Look at Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Watch out, Jesus says. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Jesus knew what consumerism was. There was obviously different market forces and different economics and politics and society back then, but the desire for more stuff still existed. And in his parable of the rich man and the barns, Jesus makes this harsh but true point that you are a complete fool if you try and protect yourself by gaining more and more stuff or by making more and more money, protect yourself for the end of your life. Why? Because you're doing it in the false comfort that you'll be able to spend your retirement living of this stuff, Jesus is saying in this passage. But the reality is, Jesus says, at any moment you might die. Any moment your life might be plucked away from you and you would have spent your, your life up until that mo- moment um, cons- you know, gathering all this stuff and you're not going to be able to take it with you, are you? One commentator says it this way about the, the man in who built the barns, he did not consider that his life was on loan from God, failing to account for the will of God in his stratagems. He likewise failed to account for the peril to life constituted by an abundance of possessions and for the responsibility that attends the possession of wealth. In other words, his possessions were a security apart from God. Now, I could talk on for ages about consumerism, which I don't think I need to because we, we, know what, we know that this is true and we know that consumerism is everywhere. And it's also an issue for Christians specifically. I mean, we have our own version of it in the church. There was a, an interesting article, short article, in the Conversation website um, by an academic from um, University of California about the influence of Californian culture on the church because in California was where the mega church really took off. Um, in the late 20th century, and there's um, 200 mega churches currently in California with over 2,000 people. And um, this scholar tried to show how Californian culture yeah, influenced these big churches that have gone on to influence the Western, or the, the, not just the Western church. So, um, you know, they started off by adapting to culture, broadcasting their church services on TV. Uh, in the 70s, they promoted informal hippie-type clothes and, you know, pastors started wearing, you know, Hawaiian shirts like me. Um, 
playing kind of, you know, music that people um, could relate to from the radio, which none of these things are necessarily wrong. You know, some of these things were done with, all of these things were done with good motive. But then the, the church has started to promise a comfortable experience. You come to our church, you'll fit in, you'll be relaxed, you'll have a great time. Uh, you'll, be able to f- you'll be able to join a like-minded community of people that, you know, you'll just look around and see people just like yourself. It sounds a little bit like a marketing campaign for, like, Chadston or something, you know, Westfield Shopping Town or something. Eugene Peterson, the, the writer and theologian, says, Pastors of America have metamorphosed into a company of shopkeepers, and the shops they keep are churches. We live with that consumer culture in the church today. And yet, every time we say the Lord's Prayer, we effectively say this. Give us each day the food we need. I mean, that's not the phrase, we, the word, exact wording we use, but that's effectively what we're saying, our daily bread. Give us the food we need and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation. We have to fight against this cultural force, even in the church. We have to expose it. We have to resist it. We have to counteract it. We have to deconstruct it. And we have to reshape ourselves towards mission. So let's talk about mission. We've had enough of talking about consumerism. Last October, the English comedian Russell Brand, who's going on a bit of a spiritual journey, you might have, if you keep up with him, he's the, he's the tall, sort of long-haired, rock star-looking English comedian in lots of movies. And he, you know, he had been an addict. Um, he'd been a, um, a, a, an, a, an addict to pornography and it was a sex addict, but also an uh, addict to alcohol and drugs. And he said, I've been in recovery from drugs and alcohol for 14 and a half years. This was an interview that he did with Relevant magazine last October. I've been in recovery from drugs and alcohol for 14 and a half years. And the longer I've been clean from drugs and alcohol the more I've noticed that our own addiction, and perhaps addiction in general, is affecting our behaviour in ways that we wouldn't previously have assumed. He said that our society of self-gratification is what prevents us from fully following a life of Christian living. This is Russell Brand. He says this, quoting, I do think a spiritual and transcendent change is required for people to be free from addiction, and by spiritual change, I mean the transition from one's life being predicated on self-fulfillment to a life predicated on service, which for me is a moment-to-moment struggle. And he actually says that he says the Lord's Prayer every day. So whether he's a Christian or not, I don't know. That's not the point. The point is he's made this observation. He says the teachings of Christ, he's Russell Brand, I never thought I'd quote him in the sermon. He said, the teachings of Christ are more relevant now than ever. And I want to add a little bit to what he's saying. He's saying, he, I want to say the full spiritual change that Jesus offers is what we've been talking about through this through line series. He offers change from death to life, from spiritual death to spiritual life. He offers change from shame to acceptance, shame, having your identity defined by shame, to being accepted as a child of God. He offers um, transition from self-focus to others' focus. He says, you don't have to try so hard anymore to prove yourself. Now you can abide in my love. And also, he's saying you don't have to be a consumer and bowing down to the idol of the market forces of the world. You can actually participate in my mission. 
This is the transition that is possible for us. Um, consumer to mission. What is mission? It's a huge topic, and we could talk about it for, for weeks or a year. We could talk about it. And I'm just, I'm going to give you a simple kind of definition. I think, first of all, you can go to the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus says to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Mission is to live out the love of Christ to the world. It is to bring healing and transformation, both structurally and personally, by bringing the message of Jesus in words and in action. And we, the church, are, we've got to think of ourselves as a sent people. We participate in God's mission locally, personally, but also internationally. Now, cynics can uh, think that there is all kinds of false reasons why mission occurs, why missionaries do what they do, why Christians tell other people about Jesus. They get cynical about it. I think their motives are corrupt. And in the reading we had from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, um, the apostle Paul, he's, he has the same issue that he's facing. People are cynical about his motives. And he says um, that he has a good motive, that him and his team that came to the church in Corinth had good motive. He said we were transparent in verse 11b. He says, what we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. There had been critics of his ministry. People said his motivations were selfish. But Paul said we weren't driven by selfish motivations. We weren't trying to make money or just get famous because we love the attention. Verse 11a, Paul says, we tried to tell people about Jesus and persuade them to accept him as their Lord and Savior. I'm expanding what Paul's saying here. Because we fear the Lord and we stand in awe of his majesty. He wanted the church in Corinth to see how passionate um, he was and his team were. And to trust that their motivations were authentic. And that is that he and his team were not crazy. Look at verse 13. We're not out of our mind. So that they, the church, could defend his ministry. So they could go out and give confidence to people in their community. This new religion we're teaching about, about this Jesus person, we haven't lost our mind here. If there's one thing that we've learned in this series, the three-line series, is that um, the motivating force that causes the change in us as disciples to go from this to that, death to life, shame to acceptance, self to others, striving to abiding, consuming a mission, the motivating force is Christ's love. Listen to what Paul says in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 5. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for those who died for them and was raised again. Christ's love compels us Christ's love is what motivates us to mission. Now we don't live for ourselves as consumers, as gluttons, lusting after our products and things, using our stuff to soothe our pain. Now we live for Jesus who died for us and was raised again. Tom Wright, the theologian, says this, The gospel is not just a mechanism for getting people saved. It is the announcement of a love that has changed the world. 
a love that therefore takes the people who find themselves loved like this and sends them off to live and work in a totally new way. Mission is about love because, because God loved us so much that we want to love other people too. We want to share that love around. There's like an overflow, an over, it's like um, an o- he's given us so much, it's flowing out of ourselves and we've got just so much to share around. So I want, to, I want you to let go of your heavy heart. You know, I know because I've been doing this for a long time, almost two decades now, I cannot believe that. Um, when I talk to people about this word mission, Christian, we can go, <sighs> why? Because so many of us think, oh no, another thing I have to do at church. Or we can think, mission doesn't work. I helped out with a mission at church like 11 years ago and no one became a Christian. Or we can think, mission is so imperialistic. It's so like, you know, imposing our beliefs on other people. We should just leave people alone. But if we've moved from death to life, if we have let go of our identity of shame and embraced our identity as children of God, if we've moved from self to others, if we're not striving to prove ourselves but abiding in God's love, then that's just going to flow out of us. We're going to want to share Jesus around with other people. In fact, mission is about not just love, but it's living as new creations. In verse 16, 2 Corinthians 5, 16, Paul says, Now as disciples, we don't think of people in a worldly way anymore. We don't rank them by their wealth or by their social status, nor do we think of Christ as a worldly Messiah who's going to somehow give us everything we need, like a magic genie or conquer the Roman Empire like a militaristic leader. Rather, we see him as a suffering servant. We see him also as a king. We see him as the lion. We see him as the lamb. Who con- the one who conquered evil with love. So if you are G- with Jesus, says Paul, if you're with him, you're a new creation. Verse 17, the old is gone, the new is here. And the Greek literally translated, translates it really briefly and powerfully. It says, if anyone in Messiah, new creation. If anyone in Messiah, new creation. So what does this new creation look like? say, at church. Well, I mean, here at Mary Creek, I've made some simple decisions early on to try and to set us up a little bit against anti-consumerism in the church, to try and set a posture. So we don't really own any buildings. Our, our biggest asset, our biggest asset is this thing here. That's Mary Creek's, all of our assets right here. Now, I reckon that's pretty good after four years, that we've only really got one asset, really, I mean, unless you include the desks in the office and the couch and the printer. I'm not saying it's wrong for churches to own stuff, but it's just a kind of a thing that we can do early on to set ourselves up. We're not going to spend all our time worrying about buildings, investing in bricks and mortar. Now, we can still have a value of excellence in ministry, but the energy for excellence can be channeled into people and the content of our ministry rather than the packaging. There are some other things we could do. I remember when we were at St. Hilary's, um, Laura Parks, the clothing, you did the clothing thing, yeah. So with um, another 
um, a friend, Anna Hooper, who some of you might know, they did a thing called cl- the clothing swap, where, now these, this is kind of practical thing, so instead of people from church just going out and buying more clothes all the time, Laura and Anna had this a few days in the, in the church hall where through the year where you could come and you could swap your clothes with each other. And it sort of, you know, stops us from buying more stuff. And, and, and it kind of creates a great posture of anti-consumerism. Even our, at our church, our simple but important ministry of delivering meals to people says to the community that, you know, you don't have to go out and while you're, you know, if you need some help, we can bring food to you because we can share the food around. This is kind of a little, I mean, it's definitely doing mission when we do that, but it's also saying, you know, you don't have to go and order takeaway because you're feeling sick today if you don't want to. We want to help you out here. But you can even take the anti-consumer challenge really far. So um, uh, Nick Corney's dad, Peter, when he first came to be the vicar of St Hilary's in 1975, after about a year or two, um, Peter got together. This, the church was much smaller then. There was only about 150, 200 people, I think, or maybe 150, I think. And they, and they got... Um, he got some of the key families and people in the church, there's about 25 of them, I think, to, and they formed what's called a covenant group, the covenant group. Now, it sounds like a cult, it's not. Um, what these people did was they said to each other, and this is all voluntary, you know, we're going to kind of have a covenant with each other. I don't know if they actually signed anything, but, you know, a, a, an agreement with each other that we are going to commit to each other in this church for the next cha- big chapter of our life as our, as our kids grow up, as we you know, go through the next decade or so, we're going to commit to each other and we're going to make sacrifices um, so that we can stay committed to each other for the sake of the ministry of this church and the mission of this church. Because we know that that's what's going to be required to get this church really to go forward. And partly, you know, this is mid-70s, so they're responding to the themes of the counterculture. We're not just going to be consumer Christians. We're going to actually put the needs of the community over and above my own needs. Um, And that had a powerful effect on the church, this covenant group. So 40 years later, many, many of those people are still there, the same people at St Hilary's. And Peter's retired. He's still there. Now, I'm not saying we have to now have a covenant group, but I would love to see a bunch of people in our church just choosing to commit to each other over and above their own kind of needs for life. And it's hard. It's really hard, especially in the inner north because real estate's expensive. It might mean thinking creatively about your housing. You know, you might really want to buy a house and then you go, well, the inner north prices are too expensive. How are we going to do this? Uh, for some people, you, you, we'll never be able to buy a house, even in the outer suburbs of Melbourne. But you could maybe combine families or you know, have some single people living with families or a bunch of single people, four or five single people buying a house together. I had a friend who did that in uh, St Kilda, five um, people from a church, they all or bought a house together and lived together. Uh, you, know, you know, you might be feeling uncomfortable as I talk to you. You know, you might be thinking, oh, man, what's he talking about here? Um, it, it could mean all kinds of things. 
Now, I'm not trying to set up rules here. I'm just trying to paint a vision of what um, moving from consumer to mission could look like if you really aimed as high as you could. Um, uh, The the point here is um, thinking over and above your own needs and your own limitations um, and actually saying, I'm going to create limitations for myself for the sake of the community. I'm going to think creatively outside the middle-class box. And of course, as we think about our second church plant, which is on the horizon, but might be a few years off still, I'm fully aware that it causes people to feel uncomfortable. Because when I talk about um, the second church plant, people think, some people think, but it's going to mess up what we have here. Um, it's going to disturb what we've got. And there is, in a way, a bit of a paradox um, in, in Christian covenantal community and, and thinking about not being a consumer but being mission-focused. And that is that on the one hand, we're to commit to each other and to the world around us in an over-and-above kind of way. On the other hand, the reason you might break that up is for the sake of mission. So you might pull apart families for the sake of mission. And it is painful, but it's what God wants. Now, in the passage, Paul defines what it means to do mission a little bit more. He says two things. He says we are to do the ministry of reconciliation, verse 18, and also we are to be ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. And I just want to spend, as we, as we come to the end now, some time thinking about what it means to be ambassadors doing the ministry of reconciliation in our vocation. That means in wherever we find ourselves. It doesn't have to be work. It could just be at home or with the people or school, wherever. How can you be Christ's ambassador? Some Christians think that the only way to do this is to work in a helping industry which is wrong, or to work in the church, which is wrong, although you might want to do those things. You can do it anywhere, although I admit some contexts are harder than others. At the bare minimum, wherever you are, you can promote a culture of grace and reconciliation and love. You can pray for the people in your surroundings. You can show hospitality to the people around you. You can let people know that you're a Christian. If you haven't done that, that's a really easy thing to do. It might be awkward at first, but you you can't begin to be an ambassador for Jesus if people don't know you're a Christian. It's like the ambassador for America coming in disguise and pretending he's not an American because he's embarrassed about Donald Trump. You You can... Talk to people about your faith in a non-weird way. You can say, oh, we went on church camp on the weekend. You might even want to go as far as people can go, if, say, it's your school or your workplace, and you you might want to start a Christian group. And that takes guts. And you might think, well, my, my workplace would never allow that. But you could ask your boss, what would happen? You could say to your boss, what would happen if I were to just put a little notice up on the notice board and have a lunchtime Christian group? And your boss might look at you a bit strange, but it's unlikely that they're going to completely stop you. See what happens. You'll be surprised who comes out of the woodwork and what impact you could have. You might want to think about changing your job if you think that it's impossible for me to be an ambassador for Christ in my context. Um, Now, I know this is... I'm not telling you to change a job. I'm just saying it's a thing that's on the table that you could consider... 
I'll give you an example. My grandfather used to be a printer, offset printer, and he worked for the Herald and Weekly Times. And in the 70s, they said, right, now we're going to start printing this particular newspaper that had topless women in it. And my grandfather was a Christian and he said, I can't be a Christian. He didn't say these words, I can't be an ambassador for Christ. But, he, you know, I can't be a Christian and live out my faith in this workplace while I'm doing something which I think is wrong. I know people in this congregation have changed jobs because they felt like they couldn't be a Christian in their workplace. Learning to be an ambassador for Christ and wherever we are is really, really important. When I used to lead Mustard, the whole kind of focus, Mustard was a school's ministry, and the whole purpose of it was to help school students to learn how to do this from high school. When they, and they would form Christian groups and meet at lunchtime and bring their friends along and pray for the school and raise money for the poor and um, they would be doing the Ministry of Reconciliation at school. Willow Creek, the big, famous American megachurch, they discovered in the, in the two, early 2000s that they had a problem of consumerism in their church and that what was happening with their youth is that they were going through youth group having like five-star gold-class youth ministry. Then they'd go off to college, as they do in America, and they always travel to college in America. And then they would get to their new location, and then they wouldn't find a church because nothing was as good as Willow Creek. And that this, this kind of traumatised the ministry team at Willow Creek. So their solution ended up being to change their youth ministry so that it all became about school's ministry getting students to learn to be ambassadors for Christ in their school context. The thing is, what I'm talking about here is finding your redemptive kingdom of God purpose in your workplace. It's working out how wherever you find yourself, how you can bring the ministry of reconciliation into your, work, into your workplace or into your house or into your, into, your, into your study or wherever you find yourself. And if you don't know how to do that, come and see me and I'll help you work it out. I love talking to people about this because I do believe most contexts you can do this. I want all of us to be able to say this. The world is not a marketplace to provide me with the best possible life. Rather, I want to reorientate towards serving others, discover the redemptive kingdom of God purpose for my vocation and share my possessions with others. Let's pray for that. Lord God, we pray that you can um, transform all, all of us in this room, that we can move away from the consumer culture that surrounds us towards being missionaries for you and participating in your mission, both locally and globally, however it is where to do it, making radical decisions some, for some of us if we can do it.